0: World War II. It's known as the greatest generation, and these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the AmeriChicks with your host, Kim Munson.
1: Hey, welcome to the AmeriChicks World War II Project. I'm Kim Munson, and we have quite a show planned for you today today. Be sure and go to my website, americhicks.com. All of these shows are archived there. You can copy the link. You can share it. And uh, as many of you know, this show precipitated from a trip that I took with a group from the Denver Police Activities League back in 2016, where we accompanied four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations. We returned back realizing we need to tell these stories and so have had the great honor to interview a number of World War II veterans. We're starting to add in stories of Korea and Vietnam as well. But thrilled to have in studio with me retired uh, Air Force Major, and that is Hansel Lee. Hansel, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, you have quite a story. Uh, you went into the service win back in
2: 1942, right? Yeah, June 26, but... They sent me to college for a while, and I went to the New Mexico Highlands University at uh, Las Vegas, New Mexico for a couple of years, I think it was, and then they called me to active duty somewhere around 1943
1: in there. Had you always wanted to fly?
2: Yeah, I was always wanting to fly. Turned out more difficult than I thought, though.
1: (laughs) And it was the, back then, it was the Army Air Corps. The Air Force had not really been invented yet. I I
2: was then, though, when it became the other, U.S. Army Air Force and U.S. Air Force. I have two GI bills under that, but I only used one of them. I bought a house with it. Bought a
1: house with your GI bill. Okay.
2: Yeah, I still have it. The other one, I think. I don't know if they're what's still good.
1: you gonna go back to school. <laughs>
2: no, I'm not going back. To, I only. I'm just going to go with my wife died earlier this year. I'm sorry. So I'm just with them. Okay. I, I'm in in bad shape, as you probably saw when I came in.
1: Well, I think, you know, first of all, it's great that you're here. Mm -hmm. And um, it's sometimes daunting to to travel to get over here to do this. So it is such an honor to have you in studio. Hansel, I have to tell you, getting to interview you guys is Mm -hmm. truly changing my life. Oh, I I really, you're a generation, there's a reason why you guys are called the greatest generation, is because you stepped up and you stood against tyranny. And so it is just my honor to have you here. So thank you. Thank you. So how old are you now?
2: Ninety-seven.
1: Ninety-seven.
2: We 98 in September.
1: Okay. Well, and uh, where did you grow up?
2: In New Mexico, but I was born in Oklahoma. I moved west with the Dust Bowl. I lived in that Dust Bowl around Amarillo, Texas for a while and then moved on to New Mexico. And I grew up there and graduated from high school in a little town named Dexter.
1: Dexter, New Mexico? Yes. Okay. What can you tell us about the Dust Bowl, Quick-Like? Is there anything that you remember about the Dust Bowl?
2: It just really black sometimes mm-hmm. and... Uh, some I don't even know if they're using any of that land. Some of those people that owned that said they never grow anything else on it. They uh, sent a farmer, and he figured out a way to get rid of the dust bowl uh-huh. by building uh, two—I think—ditches, mm-hmm. water one rod or so. Mm-hmm. I don't know just how he did it, but I was too young. To fall or anything,
1: sure. sure well, I grew up in Western Kansas, so I remember the stories of the Dust Bowl and uh so yeah, it was that's what I hear is that it was very black uh during that time, and a lot of people, like you said, they right. left, and so you went to New Mexico, you grew up in New Mexico, Hansel Lee, how did you end up in the uh Army Air corps
2: well it, they had a military team, and uh, if you're a, Somewhere I forgot what age group they had a, a, a test that we took. Okay. I took it in. Uh, I passed it the first time. Uh, that's when I was called to active duty. The guys swore me in there. I I didn't start flying for quite a while. I uh, went to a, a base close to San Antonio, okay. and to for basic training where I learned to march and all that kind of stuff. As far as military is concerned, I was there for quite a while, and then I was put on flying duty then, and I went to Muskogee, Oklahoma for primary school, Coffeyville, Kansas for uh, basic uh, training, and then for uh, multi-engine, I went to uh, Pampa, Texas, and that's where I graduated from cadets to a lieutenant.
1: Okay. What about the first time that you flew? Do you remember what you thought about the first time that you flew by yourself?
2: Yeah, I did. The ground is hard and it doesn't give way. <laughs> we'll, <know it. laughs> uh, well, I looked at life differently when I was in World War II than I do now. I I assumed it death, and I didn't think about it like I do now.
1: Do you think it's because you were so young?
2: Well, I just don't know. I just think uh, maybe it's just the general mood of everybody you were in with a bunch of— When I graduated in, uh, in uh, March the 12th of forty-four, I went home for leave— And I got two weeks leave, and then after that, uh, they sent me to Liberal, Kansas for B-24 training. Mm -hmm. And there I got checked out in a a bomber, that one, the B-24. And then I uh, went from there to Westover, Massachusetts, and waited there for an airplane and a crew to go overseas. And they finally gave me one, and I went over. I flew one over as well as flew one back after the war. I got over there in uh, November of uh, '44. Hmm. The war was way on its way. The Air Force, as far as fighters were concerned, had just about all been wiped out. So we only had flak to deal with, mm-hmm. and that's about it.
1: And you know, it's amazing, Hansel, that I didn't really understand the term "don't give me any flak" until I went to the, you know, went over to Normandy, and, and the guys were talking about flak. Explain to our listeners what flak was exactly. It was very dangerous. So explain to us well, what it
2: was. It was any aircraft shot up. From the ground by the Germans and the aircraft guns, and sometimes, like Vienna, Austria was a really tough target. And uh, one time we had a briefing, they said they, had, I think it was seven or eight hundred guns that'd be uh, on you at the same time. But uh, I only got hit once, and that was the windshield was shot out, and it was really cold, fifty below. <laughs> Uh, we didn't have any heaters or any anything in the B-24s. They gave us electric shoes, but uh, we couldn't wear any uh, any boot any boots or anything. And if we'd have got shot down, we our feet would have frozen off right away. We wouldn't have had time to have been picked up by either Mihalovic or uh, or a Tito. They picked our flyers up and brought some of them back home. In fact, the guy that lived with me in the tent got shot down late in the war, and they uh, I think it was the Russians that brought him back. That's the way it worked. We tried, but most of them got taken prisoner anyway.
1: You know, and Hansel, as I'm, I think I'm doing the math here that you were 23. 23- 3 years old oh, yeah. 22 or 23 let's just think about that my friends here's this young 23 year old kid who is flying a bomber across the the ocean for the first time and um the B24 was that the flying fortress is that is that No they,
2: the flying fortress was a B17 Was the B17 okay My brother flew that Okay He got in. He was younger than me, and he just barely made the war, three or four missions. I flew the whole war. After the war, I was on the way to Japan, but I didn't make it.
1: Well, that's a good thing.
2: Because they dropped the bomb, the atomic bomb on Japan.
1: On Japan? uh,
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: Hansel Lee, let's stop right there. We're going to go to break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to continue with your story. Hey, before we go to break, I have on the line with me Jim Ruse. He is a retired Marine. And Jim, welcome.
0: Well, thank you. Good to be with you. And thanks for letting me chat about our Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation.
1: Well, you've got something uh, coming up very exciting. But first of all, tell us a bit more about the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation.
0: Uh, the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation is the oldest uh, of the military uh, scholarship programs. Uh, it was started in 1962, and uh, since 1962, we have issued tens of thousands of um, awards, uh, scholarship awards, totaling over $130 million. Wow. So, and, uh, and it's geared towards the children of Marines and those corpsmen who work with Marines. So um, anyone that uh, w- was a Marine, has, was honorably discharged, or a Navy corpsman who worked with Marines, their children are eligible for these scholarships. And the scholarships are substantial. We're talking anywhere from 30000 to $40,000 guaranteed over um, a four-year period, and it doesn't have to be consecutive four years, but anywhere over um, the life of a person, and it doesn't matter what their age is. We have a Marine whose daughter uh, divorced with two children, um, and in her 30s went back to college, and the Marine Corps scholarship uh, helped her. So we help uh, no matter what age, no matter what gender, uh, we help.
1: Well, and Jim Ruse, it sounds like such important work, but to be able to continue this, you need to raise money, right?
0: Everything, exactly. Everything is uh, done through donations. There are no government funds involved. The Marine Corps itself, while very helpful, does not provide any um, money. So that uh, it all comes through donations. And so anything that uh, anybody can give is always appreciated. And that's why we're having this uh this fundraiser this golf outing at the inverness in south denver is to help raise money for this scholarship we have at present uh, um, a little bit over 50 colorado students in school uh nationwide we've got uh hundreds of kids going to school and our, right now our budget nationwide is 7.7 million dollars and it all goes towards scholarships so Uh, it uh, is a good program. It's it's a a solid program.
1: Well, and this golf uh, tournament uh, is actually, you get to do two things. You get to help with this scholarship foundation, but also you can get out and meet some new people and uh, hit the golf ball around. So, again, give us the details on that, Jim Roos.
0: Okay. It is uh, August 6th at Inverness Hotel and Golf Resort um, in South Denver. It is um, uh, on August 6th. And um, we are looking for, for active people that like to golf, uh, that uh, would like to help out either by sponsoring a golfer um, or by having their own foursome or just by donating money. And um, some of the, the, the people that are donating, they will just buy like a foursome and then they'll have Marines or or Corpsmen or Army or Air Force uh, veterans uh, join in. We especially want to help with those uh, 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 military, uh, Marines and corpsmen especially, uh, that were injured in the war. Um, their children actually have more, uh, they have a little bit more of a benefit than, uh, say, if you were to, uh, did your service and, and got out with an honorable discharge. Um, but uh, anybody that could help, uh, and I can give you, ins- you know, instructions on how to get to uh, um, online and, and look this up. But, uh, yeah, we're looking for people that really want to help out and if they love the golf, even better.
1: Okay. And where can they find that information, Jim Ruse? Okay. The best way would be online at uh, the initials
0: for the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, MCSF org, And when you get there, look up events, because it'll be right on the home Uh Look up events, and then it'll show... The, um, uh, the one of several golf and other events, ours is the Colorado golf event. And then once you click on that, it'll come to contributions. And then whatever you can help with would be greatly appreciated.
1: Okay, well, very good. Jim Roos, thank you so much for your good work on this important cause. And, again, that website is M-C-S-F dot org. That's M-C-S-F dot org.
0: Thanks so much. Semper Fidelis.
1: Okay, thank you. Uh, we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I am thrilled to have in studio with me retired uh, Air Force Major Hansel Lee. He is a World War II veteran. Uh, and also, did you fly in Vietnam also? Yes. Okay, we'll talk about that in just a minute, though. But uh, let's get back to your time in Europe. How many missions did you fly, Hansel?
2: Well, I flew uh, 33, I think it was. I think I liked two, uh, the 35, but they gave me credit for the whole tour whenever I left because uh, it was so close, so... As far as uh, my records go, it shows full-tour combat.
1: Okay. Okay. And And let's talk about, you've gotten over to Europe. When was the first time then that you actually flew a mission, and what went through your mind on that?
2: Well, what they did was have us fly with an experienced crew. So... uh, the first three missions, I think, I flew as a co-pilot for somebody else. And, and then I got my own crew. The first one, I forgot. But I don't know. Like I said before, it just felt different, the war. I didn't worry or fled.
1: You just did the job, huh?
2: Yeah, it was just a job as far as I was concerned. Uh-huh.
1: Tell us about the crew uh of a b twenty four How many guys were on that flight?
2: Uh, we carried ten, but we usually dropped our bomb's on the lead ship. There's only one guy bombing we all dropped ours on them if we weren't the lead.
1: okay, Let's talk a little bit about you'd mentioned I think in your videos I had the great your son had sent over some videos that you'd done a couple of years ago. You said that there were two missions that were extremely difficult. One of them was Vienna. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Well, the problem with Vienna it wasn't very far away. The Germans used it to send stuff east and, and bring it west. Uh, I think I bombed it 11 times. 10 oh. or 11. I forgot just exactly which. But that was one of the big missions. And... The rest of the missions I flew were just, well, uh, I only flew the time once or twice or three times, maybe. Uh, but uh, Vienna was a lot and a hot target. We invented his song was, The Flack is So Black, we will Never Come Back. Things like that about Vienna.
1: Wow. And you guys still got on those planes and did it. I've not heard that the flak is so black that we might not come back. Is that? Yeah. What you, oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. You know, you'd also mention Munich. What about Munich? Munich. Yeah.
2: It is was toughy, and another toughy was uh, well. When I say toughy, it's a mal- number of guns that aim at you. Prague, Prague, Czechoslovakia was one of the. I only bombed it once, and that was along towards the end of the war, but it was a toughie also. Okay. What we did, we only carried about seven hours of fuel. A lot of the missions were either all the fuel, we used all the fuel, or we landed at a a fighter base up on the lines. I, I landed up there a number of times.
1: Okay. What about fighter cover?
2: Well, we had uh, what we call
1: uh, the Tuskegee Airmen.
2: Yeah, they had a group escort us to the target. And by that time, they had used their fuel, and they came home. Another group was there waiting on them. They covered us over the target, which wasn't very long. And then we had another group that escorted us back, and that was the way that worked.
1: You know, Hansel. It seems that I heard that early on in the war that we didn't have a lot of fighter cover for our bombers, and that we lost a lot of flyers. Is is that true?
2: No, not that I know of. Okay, I, I don't remember seeing a fighter plane, but when one lone fighter came away from an area, and uh, the one of the they sent one of those airmen. To escort me. I think it was from Hungary. That's about it. Okay.
1: Well, let's talk a bit about uh, the briefings. Uh, so explain to our listeners what the briefing was exactly. It was explaining well, the mission, right? What they did
2: was get us up between 3 and 5 in the morning and picked us up at our tents in a truck and uh, took us to this Place where they briefed us, you could tell what kind of mission we had when they lowered the flag, uh, the cover, so they could see where we were going. If there were a big yell, well, usually you could figure it was a pretty rough target, like Vienna or Prague. Or we did have some what we call milk runs, but when we had milk runs, we got. a A lot of guys from headquarters come and running down there to get on the airplane to get credit for a mission. (laughs) And that way they got their whatever, 35, I think it was. It was uh, 30-something. They'd haul us back to the airplanes. They'd start the engines so you wouldn't burn any extra fuel. And then uh, to win the taxi into position to take off, Well, that's what we did, the way we did it. When we got to say, Vienna would get a howl out of the guys when they showed the target. If they were a long ways away, we always had the navigator look up the uh, fighter pilot bases there so we could land. I I never did have any trouble finding them a fighter base
1: So would they then refuel you and then you would go on back to your base or how did that work
2: We'd call them up for landing instructions and tell them about it or either maybe they already done it through headquarters if we were going to, I told them at home on the radio that we were going to land short of, for fuel Uh-huh
1: Let's change just a little bit uh, and talk about the living accommodations, the stories that you had told about, you know, how you guys took a shower and how you stayed warm. I thought that was pretty interesting. So tell we, our listeners about your living accommodations. Well,
2: the shower was out in a field. I wouldn't go out there at night or at all. The fact is it was very difficult to get a shower till after the war was over and then we built them a shower. And then uh, I think they probably tore it down right after we left over there, in '44. The fighters hold uh, drop tanks all over with fuel, and whenever they entered combat, oh, well, they dropped these fuel tanks, drop tanks, and then, or if they ran out of them, they dropped them. And what we did, we picked up. Some of them, and I didn't have anything. It all happened before I got there. And they built these tents. They built real substantial, and they built a thing around it, and they put one of those drop tanks after it was cleaned out and everything up on the rack there and built water running. They had an interior wash basin, tooth, and stuff. As far as heating, it was fifty below zero in the flights. I was always cold. I'm, even here, I'm always cold. I grew up in kind of a warm climate. Well, anyway, they put a, one of those drop tanks up on uh, this rack pipe. They had a olitic oh, orchard out there, and they were full of fuel, air, air fuel. Okay. So they put that in there, and a the guy. You put pipe down and into a. I had a, about a half of a barrel, and you put that hundred octane <laughs> fuel in that oh my gosh. thing, and it really put out the heat. <laughs> I'm sure but it did. I enjoyed it. That's how we lived in this tent. There was four of us lived in the tent. Okay. That was it.
1: Okay. Uh, and was there a floor to the tent, or was it just ground?
2: We had some sort of. It was comfortable. In it was there. comfortable. Okay. We slept in it and all like that.
1: Now, and I think that you said in the the video that uh, that I watched that you were talking about staying warm, and you said that only one tent got burned down. So.
2: Yeah, I didn't know any of those guys. There's four squadrons in a, each group, and I was in the four fifty six four fifty six bomb group. They called us the Steeds Flying and that, uh, that was the commander, Steed. But anyway.
1: Did you have the same crew throughout the war?
2: No. They took the guy, my navigator, uh, his name was, uh, I, I forgot what his name was, but we played bridge. He taught me how to play bridge, and we played a lot of bridge. Lucky for me, I turned out to be a real bridge player, and we won a little money. This guy and I. <laughs> but anyway, that's what we did during the, the daytime. If we weren't doing something else, like we didn't have anything to do until some uh, West Pointers, I think, were got in there, and they uh, gave us secondary jobs like education and all of that kind of stuff.
1: Okay, okay. Let's talk a little bit about Flack. Uh, You have a uh, memento from Flack. Tell us about that, Hansel Lee.
2: Kind of like the Dust Bowl. Hmm. Black. The only time I got hit was the windshield was knocked out, and boy, it changed things a lot in there. In the uh, cockpit, as far as coal was Mm -hmm. concerned, but... We had pretty heavy uh, electric gloves electric, mm-hmm. and electric, uh, and like I said, we made our own shoes by cutting out the shoe part and just leave the electric wires, and then we could put our boots over that. Okay. And if we had got shot down, we would at least had boots. Probably keep us there till somebody found us
1: and didn't you have a couple of pieces of flack as a memento
2: Did i've got them it's a little one and yeah. then the other one was bigger the uh crew chief dug them out they were in the impaneled behind me and if it come straight it was, so it was right behind uh,
1: your head then right yeah but
2: yeah. it they came this way okay yeah.
1: So they came at you uh, towards your face, but it missed your face and was embedded. Yeah, in Yeah. Well, right no, the
2: they head. were they were slanted. They hit and panel right behind me. And here you are at the age of
1: ninety-seven. You, yeah. that, that was close.
2: We lost a lot of airplanes to weather. Weather was really a nemesis.
1: Let's keep that thought right there. We're going to go to break. Before we do that, though, it is baseball season, and Hooters is the spot to be this summer. You can enjoy Hooters' beach-worthy seafood items like Amazing Fish Tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool down this summer. Additionally, they have this great special, nine items for $9, 11 at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and, of course, their boneless wings. So you can uh, get in and dine in for those specials, or you can have the wings delivered to your home or stop by and pick them up on your way home. So more information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com, and let them know that you know the Americhicks. We will be right back. We are talking with World War II veteran Hansel Lee. Hey, before we go to break, I have on the line with me Jim Ruse. He is a retired Marine. And Jim, welcome Well, thank you. Tell us a bit more about the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation. Uh, The Marine
0: Corps Scholarship Foundation is the oldest uh, of the military uh, scholarship programs. It was started in 1962. Since 1962, we have issued tens of thousands of uh, scholarship awards, totaling over $130 million. Wow. And it's geared towards the children of Marines and those corpsmen who work with Marines. So anyone that uh, w- was a Marine was honorably discharged, or a Navy corpsman who worked with Marines, their children are eligible for these scholarships. We're talking anywhere from thirty thousand to forty thousand dollars, and it doesn't matter what their age is. We have a Marine whose daughter uh, in her 30s went back to college, and the Marine Corps scholarship uh, helped her.
1: Jim Ruse, it sounds like such important work, but to be able to continue this, you need to raise money, right?
0: Exactly. Everything is uh, done through donations. And so anything that uh, anybody can give is always appreciated. And that's why we're having this golf outing at the Inverness in South Denver, is to help raise money for this scholarship.
1: Well, and this golf uh, tournament uh, is actually you get to do two things. You get to help with this scholarship foundation, but also you can get out and meet some new people and uh, hit the golf ball around. So, again, give us the details on that, Jim Roos.
0: Okay. It is uh, August 6th at Inverness Hotel and Golf Resort in South Denver. It is on August 6th. We are looking for, for active people that like to golf, that uh, would like to help out either by sponsoring a golfer or by having their own foursome, or just by donating money. Some of the people that are donating, they will just buy like a foursome, and then they'll have Marines or Corpsmen or Army or Air Force uh, veterans join in. Yeah, we're looking for people that really want to help out, and if they love the golf, even better.
1: Okay, and where can they find that information, Jim Ruse? The best way would be online
0: at uh, the initials for the Marine Corps Scholarship Foundation, MCSF dot org. And when you get there, look up events, because it'll be right on the homepage. And then it'll show one of several golf and other events. Ours is the Colorado Golf Event. And then once you click on that, it'll come to contributions. And then whatever you can help with would be greatly appreciated.
1: Okay, well very good. Jim Roos, thank you so much for your good work on this important cause. And again that website is MCSF.org. That's MCSF.org.
0: Thanks so much. Semper
1: Fidelis. Uh, we're going to go to break. We'll be right back.
2: <music>
1: Welcome back to the Americhicks World War II project with Kim Munson. I am so thrilled to have in studio with me retired Air Force Major Hansel Lee, served in World War II. And I have a few more questions for you about that. And then there's some other fascinating things that you did. Uh, after World War II, because you were in the Air Force from 42 to 1970. Is that right? Right. Okay.
2: Later, I flew B-52s.
1: But That's a fascinating story, so we'll get to that in just a minute. Tell me about your medals.
2: Well, I only got three, plus all the aerial medals. Three main ones, they were all uh, distinguished flying cross. We had a routine one after you flew so many minutes, you got one. And then I got one when I retired, but then I don't know how that one in the middle came. I forgot.
1: And uh, you were telling me before we went on air that you got a medal first with your wings and then you got... A star that was put on that. Explain to our listeners about that.
2: You had to fly, I think, two thousand hours before you got just a regular star on the the Distinguished Flying Cross. You could get it by doing something outstanding, and I don't remember doing anything outstanding.
1: But you must have, yeah. And Hansel Lee, when you were flying these missions to Prague and to Vienna and Munich, where were you stationed? Italy in Italy, okay.
2: Yeah, I was, I was stationed there all during the war. Okay,
1: yeah. okay. And uh, let's see. We talked about the briefings. You mentioned in your video something about hearing a gospel song on the on the come over the radio. Tell our listeners about that. Well, it
2: was a Sunday morning, and we had bombed something, and I was relaxed flying home, so I decided to tune the radio on uh, BBC, which is a a different station than it is now, BBC British Broadcasting. I turned it on uh, expecting the news, and what I got was the gospel program. Mm -hmm. And they were singing a song named How Beautiful Heaven Must Be, and I put that on my uh, songs to be sung when I I'm buried in the the church that I was going to then uh no longer in inzigix, but i I still in mm-hmm. touch with the pastor
1: okay, but that song, How beautiful Heaven must be' it really touched your heart that morning on that it really touched your heart that Sunday morning, huh yeah, yeah,
2: if any of them would at that particular time it just bombed something. I don't know what it was. We were on the way, and, of course, we had to cross the Adriatic Sea to get back to the base. Uh-huh. The boot in Italy, that boot there, was a big mark we could see for a long ways. But if we didn't figure we could make it, they had Viz that they bombed, um, and we had, a—I think, one of the Texas Senators, Benson, it crashed there. I was a 456 group. McGovern was in, I think, 455th. There's a lot of bases okay. right there in Italy.
1: Okay, okay. Hansel Lee, tell us about the time that you volunteered for a mission.
2: Well, like I said before, at the time, rumors, always rumors in the military, was that we would have to go to Japan right on from Italy if we didn't finish. So I decided I think I'd like two or three, Garage Austria. Okay. And uh, I volunteered to fly that. And of course, as soon as you volunteer, somebody's ready to give you their slot. It was really turned out to be another rough, tough lot of flak target. And I said, that's the last time I'll ever volunteer, and I don't remember volunteering for anything since then.
1: Okay. Okay. And so this is getting near the end of the war. They've told you that you, uh, when you finished there, that you would go to Japan. Yeah.
2: I I did. Uh, after I finished my 30 days at home after the war, uh, I was on my way to Japan at the time. I was in El Paso, Texas. I was riding the bus to... Uh, Drew Field in Florida to, to go to Japan, but uh, they dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima there, and so the war ended, and I didn't have to go, so I stayed there and then went back to home, got discharged.
1: Okay. Now you got discharged, but then how did you get back in the Air Force then?
2: Well... I got out, and then they recalled me for the other war. For Korea? During the Korean War, I got recalled. Okay. Yeah.
1: What did you fly during the Korean War?
2: I flew a B-50, I think. It was a short-lived airplane. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I got stationed right at home. I lived in Dexter, New Mexico, and this was land there— Dexter, I, I was uh, stationed there, and that's what they flew there, B-50s. Okay. It was uh, never did get into combat.
1: Okay. And that was during the Korean War. How about the Did you, uh, the Vietnam War? What did you do during the Vietnam War?
2: I flew what they call spookies. Okay. Somebody uh, spots the military, uh, the Viet Cong. Mm-hmm. So they'd call us up, and we'd go fly over it and drop a flare, flack, and then shoot the Viet Cong around it. Okay. It was all at night, just practically.
1: Okay, okay. And then during the Cold War, uh, you uh, did I, something very interesting.
2: I, was, I flew B-52s during the Cold War, and the mission, alert missions we flew, my wife, she was, we were in, lived in alert barracks to fly, or we flew, we'd cross the Atlantic, going and refuel a couple of times, and then circled it twice, and then flew back, and Mediterranean, Mediterranean Sea. And it took about 24 hours.
1: Hansel, I realize I want to go back and ask you a question about World War II, because in the video that I watched, you talked about how close you were in formation when you went out on those bombing missions. Could you tell our listeners how close those planes were when you flew in formation in World War II? Well, I like
0: to
2: say I was a pretty good formation flyer. And it took two styles, you know, the pilot flies in the left wing, and if you fly on the right wing in an airplane, it's right there. But if you fly across cockpits, cockpit, you have to look across into the, the, the other thing. And I used to say if you could stop it so there wasn't any air, blow you off, you could walk. Out of one cockpit, all the way down that wing, step down five or six inches, or up five or six inches, and then walk on into the other wing. But that's how close we could fly. We didn't fly that close though all the time.
1: But you did sometimes.
2: Yeah. Well, we we tried to fly over the target.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah.
2: So you you'd be real close. The, the bombs would fall in.
1: Got it, got it. Yeah. You know, and I think, uh, listeners, I I just think about this. These are young guys. Think about how close those planes are. They're coming in, they're taking enemy air fire. And it's just astonishing as I really start to think about what you did, Hansel Lee, uh, on those particular missions. But I thought it was so interesting how you had said how close that those planes were. And this wasn't like I mean, I'm always impressed with the the Blue Angels or, you know, any of those kinds of uh, things when you see an exhibition. But you guys were in the real deal, and you were flying that close. Mm -hmm. So, so, okay, now we're going to go back over to when you were doing these alert missions. uh, Describe to us about the refueling. I find that absolutely fascinating how you guys refueled uh, your B-52s on that um, alert mission.
2: Well, B-52 is close, but they had a long boom down, and it hung down this way. And what you did, you flew up. When you when you get to the point where it's uh, air coming over the wing of a tanker pushing you back all the time, so you, so you have to give it a little extra fuel to get a little speed to go break that barrier and, and then you go on up there and when you hit the boom you also get a hit with uh, quite a f- amount of fuel under pressure and you push you back so you have to give it a little more fuel I didn't have any trouble fueling. It took about 30, 35 minutes or 30 to take on a fuel load and when you finished, you looked like you walk or get out of the shower. It's, it's That hard. I didn't have any trouble with that. I usually hung on and never fell off, as they call Because once you got a lot of fuel in there mm-hmm. and heavy, and you fell off, it was real difficult getting back on the on the mm-hmm. on the boom. Mm-hmm. But
1: and you did two refuelings, is that right, on each mission?
2: Yeah, two two refuelings each mission.
1: Okay, okay. Now, um, Major Hansel Lee, we're just about out of time. Is there any other story, anything that you'd like to say to our listeners?
2: Well, I flew across the Adriatic twice on two engines during the war, is because if you lose an engine in flight, you either have to feather the engine or that means you turn a prop right straight into the wind. But if you don't do that, you're doomed. When I say doomed, your you know, windmilling prop is just like a flat board there. And I'll tell you what, well, our targets were mostly railroad yards and mm-hmm. marshalling yards, mm-hmm. big ones. Mm-hmm. And they were usually full of supplies. Of German, and, of mm-hmm. German supplies mm-hmm. as the war. Mm-hmm.
1: And that is one of the ways, really, to to win a war is the logistics, you know, to be able to uh, cut their supply lines. That's a real important component, yeah. so what you guys did. So, Hansel Lee, um, what do you, what goes through your mind when you see the American flag?
2: Well, I I get kind of broken up and think they mistreated a lot today. Yeah. But,
1: and and the other question I wanted to ask you, Hansel Lee, you're you're ninety-seven. You're going to be ninety-eight in September. A World War Two veteran, Korea, Vietnam. What would you say to the young people in America today?
2: Well, I don't know. I tell them they should be loyal to the flag.
1: Okay, and because you know, and and the flag is a symbol of of what you and so many others have done to to put your. Your life on the line yeah. so that we can live in freedom. Yeah. So, so uh, Hansel Lee, uh, thank you so much. This has just been a real honor to get to do this interview with you.
2: Well, I feel good about it. Okay. Well, thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, so we'll go ahead and sign off here at Hansel Lee. Uh, this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project. Thank you so much. And be sure to tune in. And uh, Next week, same time, same station.
0: Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.